Well, it's good to be with you today. My name is Matt Blackwell. I serve as the South Campus pastor here at the Austin Stone. And uh, just so that y'all know, uh, South Campus turns three months old today. So happy birthday to South Campus. And uh, thank you for your prayers. God is continuing to be faithful in all parts of our city. Uh, and it's a real joy to serve him together. Uh, well, we are uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to continue in our series in Mark. And if you were with us last week, you remember that we were studying the, this, this amazing famous story of Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem, and he's coming into Jerusalem over uh, the Passover, and he rides in on a donkey uh, as the humble and true king. And so we pick up the story the very next day as Jesus goes out of Jerusalem. He's coming back in on Monday and he's coming in not as the true and humble king. He's coming in now as the true great high priest who's about to go into the temple and wreck shop. And so if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 12. It says this. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And so Jesus had gone out of the city. Now he's coming back into the city and he's hungry. It's breakfast time. He sees a tree, a fig tree, and he decides, I'm going to go get some breakfast for me and my boys. And so he, he goes up to this tree that's in leaf. The leaves would, would uh, indicate that there's probably some fruit on the tree. But upon further review and closer inspection, he gets up to the tree to find that there's no fruit, no fig on this particular tree. And so he speaks directly to the tree. Right? We've seen Jesus speak to creation before and he, he calmed the storm and here he curses the tree and says, may no one ever eat of this tree again. And he does so so that his disciples hear him. And you know, honestly, you may have read this story before. I've read this story before and it's one of those stories you kind of maybe just skip through because it seems like maybe Jesus is just being a little grumpy or something. Like, man, what's happening with the poor fig tree? Like, man, leave the tree alone, you know? Hug the tree. But, but he, he curses the tree because it's not producing uh, what he desires for it to produce. And so is Jesus just being grumpy here or is there something else going on? Well, obvious there's something else going on because when he speaks directly to the tree, Mark specifically says he speaks in a way that his disciples hear him. So Jesus is actually delivering an object lesson, a sermon about fruitfulness. And he's looking at this tree who is all leafy but really is empty inside. And he knows, Jesus knows the Old Testament that time after time in the Old Testament, prophet after prophet referred to the people of God as a fig tree, a fruitless fig tree. So he is drawing on that illustration saying the fruitfulness of this tree is, is indicative of the fruitlessness of the people of God. So there, there's all the exterior leaves, but when you get up close, there's no fruit to it. A couple of years ago, uh, I went to a restaurant and I was going, it's one of those uh, cafeterias, uh, and so you get your tray, and you slide them across the metal uh, bars, and you know, you get your, you know, pudding cup, and your fruit with, uh, you know, jello with fruit in it kind of thing, and, and so it was a healthy day for me, one of those, and so I grabbed a, a Cobb salad, feeling pretty good about myself, it's in cellophane, but it looks amazing, 
So if you ever had Cobb salad, it's got the lines of bacon, yes please, uh, cheese, tomatoes, it's all colorful, it looks great. I'm like, this is going to be a good salad, I'm going to feel good. Uh, so I get it, I, I bring it out to my table and I uh, start mixing it up because you want equal bacon, cheese, and lettuce all on the same bite. You don't want too much lettuce, you want more bacon and cheese than lettuce. And so I start mixing it up only to reveal that underneath it must have been sitting there for, I don't know, a week or so because the lettuce uh, had turned sort of a uh, a gross, uh, oozy shade of brown. Uh, And what I found in the lettuce was not salad dressing, but what looked sort of like brown gravy uh, because it had turned brown and it was all sort of gross and, and liquidy. And so I'm turning this thing over, realizing that all of the ooze from the wilted lettuce is getting all over the good stuff. And so the salad becomes absolutely worthless. Uh, I decide I'm going to try to eat it anyway because I don't have a lot, you know, but I, I decide after one bite, no, I, I like gravy on my food, but not brown gross gravy that comes from wilted lettuce on my food. And so I decide, nah, I think I'm good. But what happened was the, the grossness, the death of the lettuce underneath, it spoiled everything else. And so there's no nourishment that comes from that. And so Jesus walks up to this tree and he sees the beauty of the tree and he gets up close and he realizes there's no nourishment in it. There's no fruit in it. He can't eat of it. He can't be filled by it. The purpose of fruit is to fill the stomach. And so when we bear fruit, we do so not so that we look great. The apple tree doesn't bear fruit so it looks great. The apple tree bears fruit so that you can pick the apple and be nourished by it. The fruit of the tree is to nourish the soul and the heart of someone else. And he comes up and he finds this fruitless tree and so he curses it. He speaks directly to it and says, May no one eat of this tree again and his disciples hear it to see this object lesson. So what's happening here is this private illustration for his disciples. It's about to get a public application as they enter into the temple. So let's keep reading. Verse 15. It says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so we see Jesus entering in to Jerusalem at the time called the Passover. Now, we remember from last week uh, that at Passover, the city's population would swell to six times the normal amount. So the city would have upwards of two million people in it. There's lots of people. Most of those people are coming to go to the temple. So here all these hordes of people are coming into town. Now you and I complain if there's like an F1 deal going on or ACL and like two or 300,000 people come in. Imagine if the city of Austin swelled to six times the number and six million people descended on the city for one week. The crowds uh, and the restaurants and the roads and that's what's happening in Jerusalem. So Jesus is coming in and he's going to the pinnacle of, of what's happening in the world at that time. And he goes to the temple at Passover. And that's not on accident. Didn't just go, oh, cool, it's Passover. 
The reason Jesus is going to the temple at Passover is because what Passover represented, if you remember back to the book of Exodus, remember what Passover was, is when, when God was pulling his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he's pulling them away from an evil Egyptian king, ruler named Pharaoh, and he's bringing them toward a particular place of property, a geography called the Promised Land. That's what Passover, that's what happened at Passover. And so Jesus is entering in and now there's a new and better Passover happening. He is pulling people out of slavery, not the slavery of Egypt, but the slavery of sin. He's pulling them away from a ruler, the ruler of this world, Satan. And he's pulling them towards and guiding them to a promised land, not a piece of property in the Middle East somewhere, but the eternal kingdom. And so that's what's happening. That's why he comes at Passover. And so he enters in to the temple and it is packed. It is crazy busy. And so I want you to get this in your mind because uh, I think it's helpful as we, we think through this. But as he enters in, he enters in to what's, what's called the court of Gentiles. So in the temple, as you walk in, a large outer area would be called the court of Gentiles. And everybody could go in there. Jew, pe- Jewish people, Gentile people could go into the court of Gentiles to seek God and to pray. But as you drew into the temple, it became more restrictive. And so the next court would be uh, a court only for the Jewish people. And so they could go into that court. And there were signs posted that say, if you are a Gentile and enter into this place, there is the penalty of death. So you've got to kind of take that seriously. Uh, and so you, you don't go there. Uh, and then as you draw into the temple, at the very heart of the temple is a place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the most holy place. And at the center, at the heart of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in there. And he could only go in there one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would go in to make sacrifices for the nation of Israel. And so that is the the, the architecture of the temple. And so Jesus walks into that first big court, that open air court, and he sees just a mass of humanity, people buying things and selling things. And, uh, and, and you've got these tables with money changers, and they're, they're exchanging, they're doing foreign uh, currency exchange. So people would come in with their Roman currency with the image of Caesar on it, and they couldn't pay their temple tax because that was considered uh, idolatrous, blasphemous. And so they had to exchange their money to get temple money so that they could make their temple tax. And so there's all these money changers go- going on there. Now, I don't know if you've been to the airport and you've done foreign currency exchange and you put your money underneath the glass and you get your money back and you always have to pay some sort of uh, exchange rate. Well, that's what was going on. The people were paying an exchange rate. I read one historian that said the exchange rate that was going on in the temple uh, was, was anywhere from 20% to 300%. Now, mathematically, I don't even know how you do that, but, but the idea was is there was extortion going on. They had to do it in order to worship, and the people knew that. And so they had all of these money changers. But over here on this side, you had table after table after table of animals, and they were selling animals up to 250,000 animals were bought and sold during the Passover time. So can you imagine walking into the court, into the place you're supposed to pray, and you see 250,000 animals and the sounds and smells that would go along with that. And so there they are, and so Jesus comes into this scene, and he wrecks shop. He starts turning over the tables of the money changers. And if you can imagine, just piles of coins. And he flips them over and money's going everywhere. 
And it says in specifically in Mark that he comes over and he takes the table uh, or the chair of the guy selling pigeons and he tosses that across the room. And then he starts driving people out of the temple and saying, no, you get out, out of here. There's people who are cutting across town. So the temple's right here and there's two streets on either side. People would be making shortcuts through, carrying things, like walking through, like, hey, what's up? Just kind of crossing through the temple in order to uh, make a shortcut. And Jesus is like, no, we're not having any of that. No more shortcuts in the temple. No more sales going on in the temple. And he starts kicking people out. And you say, man, Jesus is having a bad day. He's cursing trees. He's yelling at people. Like, what's going on here? Well, he specifically uses two Old Testament verses to explain his actions. One is Isaiah 56. It says this in verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to love the name of the Lord and hold fast my covenant... These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And so Jesus knows the purpose of the temple. He knows that it's being impeded. He knows the purpose of the Passover. He knows why these people have come to sacrifice. And here they come, and you've got the, 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 the scene that he enters into. And I want you to think like, uh, like trying to pray and worship uh, at like First Tuesday Canton or Round Top or Black Friday at Barton Creek Mall. Like you go there, like I, I got an idea. I'm going to go pray and seek God on Black Friday at the front of Walmart at like 6 a.m. That's going to be the place that I'm going to connect with Jesus. People are knocking you down, trying to get flat screens, right? Uh, people trampling through. That's the scene here. There's, there's thousands upon thousands of people pressed together, buying and selling animals and exchanging money and being uh, overwhelmed at the fact that they have to pay these exorbitant rates in order to worship. And so this is the place the Gentiles, this was the court of Gentiles. This was the place designed for Gentiles to seek God. And they couldn't, they couldn't pray. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament and saying, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples and it's not happening. But, but not only that, it says that you've made this a den of robbers, that there's extortion going on here. And specifically Mark, he mentions that Jesus throws down the chairs of the guy who's selling pigeons you say, so what? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, when you had to come and make a sin offering or a guilt offering, you had to use a bull or a goat. That, that was the, the sacrifice required to make a sin offering for the sins and guilt of your soul. The blood of the bull and the goat was what would cleanse you. But God made a provision for poor people. He said, okay, I get it, I get it. Bulls and goats, kind of expensive. If you are poor, you can buy a dove, a dove or a pigeon. And that's, that counts, that's okay. So Jesus is coming in and he's throwing down the chair of the guy selling pigeons saying, no, no, no. Specifically, Mark says that because what's happening is the poor people are being extorted. The poor people are being overcharged in order to come and worship. And so we see prayer being impeded. We see the poor being extorted. And we see God being ignored. And it, and it causes something to rise up in Jesus. It causes something to rise up in Jesus. And he gets angry. But the fact of the matter is this. is Who should have been angry about this? I mean, who should have been the people that said, no, nah, we're not doing this. This is the temple of God. Who is in charge of the temple? 
It was the chief priests. It was their role to be in charge. It was their role to be the representatives of God, the mediators. It was their role to display the goodness of God to the Gentiles and be the mediators for the Jewish people. It was their responsibility. They should have been outraged, but we notice that they're not. We notice that it's the chief priests who are making a killing off of this because they, they open up the opportunity for these people to come and sell things and so they're taking the portion off the top. We notice also that millions of people come to Jerusalem to go to the temple. It's the workplace of the chief priests so they're getting attaboys and they're getting pats on the back and they're wearing the full garb so that people take notice of them. So they don't want to disrupt this thing. They've got a good thing going. They're making money. They're getting respect. And so nothing rises up in them. But when the glory of God is impeded and worship is not happening, something rises up in Jesus because it's the heart of Jesus to value the glory of God. See, the the thing that your heart values, when, when anger happens, when anger rises up in you, it reveals something about the value of your heart. When you get angry, when you get upset, when you get mad, that's something, there's a value that's at stake there. And and Jesus values most preeminently the glory of God. And when he sees it impeded, it drives him to be righteously angry. But we know that that was not the value of the chief priests because they were letting it happen. They'll get angry about something, but they don't get angry about that. And so Jesus comes in and he begins to function as the priests should have functioned. He becomes the true priest in the temple. Uh, Hebrews talks about Jesus like this. Hebrews chapter 9 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus comes in and takes the place of the priests, and they know that their authority is being questioned. They know that their, uh, their uh, money, is be- the, the, the income is being impeded. They know their respect is on the line. And so that's what causes them angry, a- anger. And I noticed that this week, uh, both Jesus, the true high priest, and the chief priest operate out of anger, right? We see Jesus operating out of a righteous anger that flows from the value of the glory of God. But we also see the chief priests operate out of anger, we see them in verse 18 and it says that they, uh, that they get angry and want to destroy Jesus. They want to snuff out the author of life. See, they had a sweet deal going and when he came in and questioned their authority, war was being waged on their respect and that's what caused them to be angry. And so we notice if, if, if anger really does show the value of our hearts, the value of their hearts was ultimately themselves because that's what caused them to be angry. Jesus steps in, they get angry, they say, let's destroy him. And it says because there was fear that they wanted to destroy him. And so that was their greatest value. They understood that when it came to Jesus, you either crown him or you kill him. And so they opted for the latter and said, let's rid the earth of his presence. See, when we have excessive anger or when we have uncontrollable fear it points to something deeper in our hearts it points to a value when anger rises up when fear rises up it's pointing to something deeper in our hearts Tim Keller author and pastor he says it like this he says one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes the one becomes one of the chief characteristics of life 
And when we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. For if our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. Do not say, what a shame, how difficult. But rather, this is the end. There is no hope. So the question becomes, what is it in your heart? Like, like try to think about the last time you were excessively angry or uncontrollably afraid. What does that say about the posture and value of your heart? Now, I'm not necessarily like an over, overly angry person. My emotional range is like here to here, like, eh, to pretty good. Like, I don't, I don't have lots of highs and lows. And so anger isn't one of the things that boil in me. But there's two things, well, three, if you count sports, but I won't count that. Uh, so there's two things that, that cause anger in me. One of them is traffic. I don't know why. It's an unredeemed part of my soul. Uh, it's unsanctified. But, and, and I should know this. I live in South Austin and I drive to North-ish Austin to, uh, to go to work. And so I know that I-35 is crowded. Like it's not, there's no day where I get on. I'm like, oh, sweet. Nobody else is going to work, <laughs> right? Uh, every single day it's busy. Uh, and every single day it frustrates me to no end and I get angry. I get angry that that guy is going to squeeze into this little spot between me and the truck in front of me. I'm like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, you did it. No. And so I got to slow down, right? And I'm like, oh, you know, if I wasn't a pastor or whatever, you know. Uh, and so I get so angry. But it reveals something about my heart. It reveals something that I get disrespected when I get cut off. And that says something about my need for being respected. It says something because I sit there and I know it should take 22 minutes, but it takes 54 minutes and it drives me crazy because I'm not able to achieve or accomplish anything. I have so much useless data about the NFL draft because all I do is sit there and listen to talk radio, sports radio uh, all day long and and I can tell you all sorts of things and it drives me crazy because I'm not achieving or accomplishing or doing anything that's productive. And so that says something about my heart, my value. And so when that anger rises up in me, I've got to, to recognize that. And the second thing that makes me angry is, um, I used to think I was a pretty good person until about eight years ago. We had a kid. Uh, I used to think I was, you know, I was pretty sanctified. I was pretty holy. I was pretty gracious. I was kind. I didn't get upset. And then all of a sudden, this little person, now three little people, have their own little sin natures. Uh, and they, their sin nature and my sin nature don't seem to mesh uh, when we're trying to get ready for school and their shoes that aren't on. I'm like, look, we're going to be late. Ah, I don't care. I'm like, oh, my gosh, please. I'm going to staple the shoes to your feet. Uh, right? Something rises up in me, and it's, and it's a control. It's an idol of control. It's something that I can't make them do. I can't force them to feel the things that I feel, to have the same values that I have, and it says something about my hearts when, I, when my mode of operation is anger towards them. But it says something about our hearts when we get angry, when we get fearful. It is, a, it is a neon arrow to say there's something going on underneath. There's something going on in your heart. Because what you truly value comes out when you get angry or fearful. And we saw Jesus got angry, righteously angry, when the glory of God was being impeded. But the chief priests got angry when it was themselves their prestige and their prosperity that was being impeded. That's when they get angry. That's when they get upset. But before we judge the chief priests too harshly, I wonder uh, if that's not the mode of our hearts more often. 
that, that we don't follow after the, the heart of the chief priest more often than we follow after the heart of the true priest. That, that ourselves is really what we value more than the glory of God in our own hearts. Because I don't know if you remember this, but that you and I, we too are called priests according to the New Testament. First Peter chapter 2 says it like this. He says that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you are a priest. What kind of priest are you? Are you a priest who values preeminently the glory of God? And when you see God's glory being impeded, and you see the poor being extorted, and when you see prayer uh, being overlooked, and you see God being ignored, does that rise something up? Does, does that cause righteous anger in you? Or, or more often, do you get angry when your prosperity is in question, when your prominence is in question, when people don't respect you like you think maybe they ought to respect you, and people get in your way? Is that what causes anger and fear to rise up in you? Because you and I are priests. Which priest are we following after? Whose hearts do our hearts reflect? Because I think oftentimes, honestly, if I'm honest, I more reflect the heart of the chief priest than the heart of the true priest. And that, it saddens me. But there's hope for us. I love the way that Jesus ends this little section so they walk out of the temple I don't know if we have this up here but just listen if, if we don't in verse 20 it says as they passed by in the morning they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to him Rabbi look the fig tree you cursed has withered and Jesus answered them have faith in God so they walk out of the temple, out of this dramatic scene, and they're leaving town again, and they pass the same tree that had no fruit earlier. And, and Peter looks at it and goes, look, at the, the tree's completely withered down to the roots. And Jesus' response to that, his application of that is this, is have faith. Have faith in God. And I've been wrestling this week. I, I told some of the guys earlier this morning, I've been wrestling with how to apply this message. It's hard to apply it, but ultimately I couldn't escape Jesus' own application for us. And here's how Jesus talks through this. He says, look, you see the fruitless tree. It has all the accoutrements of life. It looks fully alive. It has all leaf, but no fruit. And he curses that tree and it withers and dies. And then he walks into the temple and he, he throws people out of the presence of God because worship was being impeded and the glory of God was being overlooked. So he casts them away from the presence of God. And he calls his disciples and he says, look, I want you to have faith in God. That is the, the, the remedy for the fruitless tree. That is the remedy for the faithless priests is to have faith in God. And we say, God, how do we have faith in you? How do we stir that up in our own, in our own hearts? Is it to sing more passionately? Is it to study more diligently? What is it that causes us to have faith? And ultimately we realize it is only by the grace of God that we're able to have faith in the true high priest. Again, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 10 this time. Here's what the author says about our high priest and our faith in him. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so we ask that God would give us the faith to believe because Jesus is our true sacrifice that enters into the Holy of Holies as the true great high priest. He now makes access for us to gather uh, near God's presence. He calls us to draw near to his presence because he's gone in to the Holy of Holies. By his death, he's ripped the curtain that, that separated the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. So now the presence of God is accessible to all people. You don't have to walk through the court of Gentiles uh, to pass the sign that says only enter by death into the court of the Jewish people, into the place where only the true high priest could go to enter the presence of God. But God, Jesus, has gone to that place. He's made atonement for not only the nation of Israel, but for humanity, for all the people, so that now we have access to him by his grace. But it goes on to even greater than that. It says, because of this great high priest, let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Because Jesus is that true and better priest, we have a full assurance of faith. See, our mediator isn't a a man, isn't a chief priest whose heart is far from God. It is ultimately Jesus who is the true mediator between our hearts and God's. And he enters in and it's only by his blood that we now have access. And it's only by him that we have faith. And so we pray, God, would you give us faith to believe that? And then finally we read this. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And ultimately, it's the faithfulness of Jesus that allows us to have hope. It's his faithfulness that leads us to have a hope beyond ourselves. It's his faithfulness that leads us to live a light of fruitfulness. Because he was faithful, he increases our faith and produces in us the fruit that he's called us to live. See, the fruit of God's spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. That is what God produces in you so that your life isn't just leaves, but it's fruit so that others' lives may be fed, and that they may eat of the fruit of your life and see God and say, God is good. So we ask that God would increase our faith so that he increases our fruit so that others see that he is good. Maybe today you sit here and your marriage is on the blink, and you say, God, I don't know what else to do. Maybe today it's simply praying, God, would you increase my faith so that you increase the fruit because the fruit of your spirit is love. Would you let me love my spouse? They don't deserve it, God. But God, let me love them like you loved me because that is the fruit of your spirit. So pray that you could love your spouse like that. Maybe today you come in and you've been in this cycle of sin. And you can't seem to get out of it. You're continually running to the same things to fill your soul. Maybe today you say, God, would you increase my faith so that the fruit of your spirit would bear self-control in my life, would increase faithfulness in my life so that I could walk in your spirit. Maybe today you sit here and you say, I don't don't know if I've ever had faith. I don't know if I've ever seen fruit. Maybe today you simply ask God for the faith to believe in your deficiency and in his sufficiency. That in your deficiency, in your depravity, he is sufficient. His sacrifice as the true great high priest is sufficient. And it is sufficient to save your soul. 
and to call you to repentance. It is his kindness that leads you to repentance and say, God, would you be kind to me? I don't deserve your kindness, but would you be kind to me? God calls faith to be stirred in my soul so that the fruit of that would be faith. Lord, make that happen. That's our hope and that's our prayer that God would be faithful and he is and that he would bear the fruit in our lives that he's called us to live so that others might be fed so that we wouldn't be cursed like the fruitless tree, that we wouldn't be driven from the presence of God like the faithless priests, but that we would live out the faithful, fruitful life that he's called us to live. Let me pray for us. Father, would you be who you are? God, you are faithful You are right, Lord, when we are faithless, God, and we ask that even in our faithlessness, even in our fruitlessness, Lord, you would come and stir our soul's affection for you. Would you ignite a faith that we don't even know how to create, but Lord, you do. And so, Lord, would you be faithful to us and produce the fruit that you've called us to live? God, we love you and we want to love you more. And we we just want to say that we are sorry for when we have Let our heart's values not be your glory, but our own selfish gain, our own selfish pride. Lord, where you have seen that in us, God, turn over the tables in our hearts so that we would be drawn into your kindness, that we would be forgiven, that we would be drawn into your presence so that we would live the lives that you've called us to live that are eternally significant, Lord. We love you. We pray that you would allow us to worship and honor you in these songs with our life for the glory of your name. Amen.